Friday night on the Fan Pregame 90-minute show on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 360, and Sportsnet 590. The Fan, Justin Cuthbert and Jesse Rubinoff leading you up to an NBA Finals rematch from five years ago, Warriors and Raptors from Scotiabank Arena. It's actually the first time, first appearance in Toronto for Steph Curry since Game 5 Very cool. of the NBA Finals, which is wild. Uh, we will have two guests to help tee that up. Sirit Sohi and S. Barahaney, who did a great job on the Raptors show, co-hosting with Will Lou this week. We'll have Sirit in 30 minutes. In about an hour, we'll bring S on. Sometimes I just go on YouTube and watch Raptors highlights from that season, and it is remarkable how much the game of basketball has changed in five years. Like, it's mm. just, they don't play defense anymore. It's a completely different game. It's, I just found it funny. I went back and watched specifically, like, last week, some of the moments from the run, and man, the intensity... Unbelievable. Hopefully we can get back to that at some point uh, when the Raptors eventually make the playoffs sometime in hopefully the next 10 years. (laughs) Uh, Blue Jays under the lights tonight against the Yankees. Chad Dallas against Garrett Cole. Keegan Matheson is going to join us from Steinbrenner Field in Tampa Bay, which is just down the road from where the Jays are going to open the season less than a month from now against the Tampa Bay Rays, which will be exciting. Uh, excited to talk to Keegan about, you know, it's crazy that we're already here in spring training. It feels like we're, we're full swing now. Yeah, we are definitely full swing spring training under the lights tonight, under the dome, I guess, when we get started uh, in earnest. And yeah. we have a trade to break down in Leafland, a boosh to the lineup, according to Maple Leafs, Morgan Riley. Not my joke. <laughs> All number 44s. We'll discuss the return of Ilya Labushkin in a moment. But as we uh, wait for Keegan Matheson to join us, well, I think he's with us now. So let's just get right to it because we got a trade in Leafland to break down when we get an opportunity, but an opportunity to talk to Keegan Keegan Matheson, always work worth taking. Excuse me. Uh, Welcome on Keegan. Uh, How's everything going down there in Florida? I'm doing well, guys. You guys scared me. I heard we've got a trade and I've been eating dinner. (laughs) My goodness, the heart rate goes up quickly. It's uh, it's good to be here. Good to be down in Florida. Happy to be on guys. How you doing? Uh, We're doing pretty good. Yeah. You're settled in in Florida now. Everybody's settled in, I guess. Like what's the first move from you? Cause this is, you know, this is an annual occurrence, of course, for you getting down to Dunedin. Is there something you love doing when you first get to Florida? Super target, baby. You got to set up the room. You need to make the room your life. Cause I'm in that hotel room for what? 40, 45 days. I I used to make the mistake of treating it like a long hotel stay. Now I move in, you know, you got to set up your life a little bit you got to get more than just the hotel amenities. So right between the airport and where I stay on Clearwater Beach is a big, beautiful target. So I uh, run in there, make some uh, some very aggressive financial decisions, <laughs> and uh, try to turn that hotel room into something that uh, I'm, you know, I'm not able to tell as a hotel room, but it's uh, been a good time. I know when you come down to, to Florida, like uh, everyone else who goes down there, you're sort of looking for a, a story that will perk your interest. There's sort of all the same storylines and headlines going into spring training. This time it was Alec Manoa, had his Vladimir Guerrero look. But is there anything through the first couple of weeks of spring training here that has forced you to maybe raise a little bit of an eyebrow and has, and has grabbed your interest? Yeah, thinking about the early days, guys, this is a, a camp, frankly, for the second year in a row. I, I remember last year, the only roster competition was Nathan Lucas versus Otto Lopez for the last spot, which ended up not mattering at all. They barely used uh, the 26th roster spot. This year's kind of the same. No big competition. I think it's about the prospects. It's about Ricky Tiedemann. It's about Aurelvis Martinez, the guys that represent upside on this team. Because when you look at the new MLB players, you're looking at Justin Turner, Isaiah Kiner, Falefa, guys like this represent stability and keeping the floor safe uh, on this team. But if you are going to look at somebody 
changing the ceiling and changing the trajectory of who the Blue Jays are, it looks like it's going to have to be someone younger. Uh, Ricky Tiedemann looks ridiculous. Uh, He's a guy who's going to be back on the mound here these next few days. He's packed on muscle. Uh, He is testing the limits, uh, I think, of what the human body is capable of right now (laughs) as a lefty. But if he clicks, he's the ultimate prospect, the ultimate guy you can dream of. And I'm sure if we went in the Fan 590 archives, we have audio of me saying this, only with the words Nate Pearson attached to it. (laughs) So there is uh, always that caveat, I know. But watching Ricky Tiedemann, my expectations and my impression of him was already extremely high. Coming into camp, he's the number one prospect. We have him as number 29 in MLB. His ceiling is crazy. If it can all click, watching him has been so impressive. And this is a team that, frankly, needs some upside. If you're going to get into those 90, 95 win range, you need some upside. That's going to have to come from the young guys. So semi-floored, or at least you know, on the path to being floored uh, when looking at Ricky Tiedemann uh, throw the baseball down there in Dunedin. I wonder what your impression was of Alec Manoa before the start that we saw a, a couple of days ago. Because uh, Alec Manoa, everyone was impressed, right? Like t- trimmed down a little bit. He's got the hair. He's got the beard. He's every- got everything cooking. He looks like a positive guy. And it looks like, hey, this is, there's a chance that we could just return to form here. Then he goes out, plunks three batters. It's not overly impressive. He's not really down in the dumps after. No one's really uh, uptight about exactly what happened. But how does you know the first impression contrast with, hey, he's out there throwing pitches against live batters impression uh, when looking at Alec Manoa's first week down there in Florida? Yeah, I think Alec is such a great example of trying to balance what matters in spring training. Mm-hmm. Now, if Kevin Gossman had hit eight batters in a row, I don't care. What I mean, maybe get him out of the game and save some lives, but if it's Gossman, whatever. We've seen what he does every year. Certain players have earned the right to take spring training at their own pace. And that was Manoa a year ago. He was coming off a third-place finish. He looked like the ace for the next while in Toronto. But he's in a place now where, yes, he has the inside track on that fifth job. It's completely his to win or lose. But you still need to see it showing up in games. Now, saying that in February, like a couple of days ago, is a little tough, a little harsh. But you really want to see the offseason changes result in something. And that's when you can start to believe in someone being in very good shape or someone having a new pitch, a new velocity. That's when it can really get exciting when you see it happening. Now, Alec was happy. He liked where his velocity was, and that is something. But the control and losing pitches is a little bit more of what we've seen before. So really loved where he was at and loved what I'd seen before that start. But then you see it, and it feels familiar. So uh, I think he is someone who will look better next time out and start to reel in that control a bit more. But he's unfortunately in the position now where we still need to see it. If Gosman or Barrios or Bassett or even Kikuchi this year has a bad outing and says they felt good, I'll say, great, that's what matters. With Alec, I think we still need to see it a little bit. It's kind of still in that competition mode. So who's pushing him the most? We talked about how amazing Ricky Tiedemann looks. So what would a timeline be on when, if Alec Manoa has a a rough stretch out of the gate, like how long are they going to continue with the song and dance of just trotting him out there if the results are not there? And then what does it mean? Is it a Ricky Tiedemann that steps in, or is that too early of a timeline? Is it more of a Bowden Francis or, again, a Mitch White who comes in and fills that fifth spot in the rotation? Like what 
in your opinion, as of right now at least, who steps in to fill that void in the event that Alec Manoa can't get back to what he once was? With Ricky Tiedemann, I think it's a lot about workload. Guys, he, he threw 62, 64 innings last year. Mm-hmm. I think he has 100, maybe 110 to work with this year. I think comfortably 110 if he's healthy. You need to kind of maximize that. Maybe that's ramping up a little slower in AAA, trying to save some of that runway to use in the big leagues. You want those innings to happen in the major leagues. And eventually, the, the Blue Jays are going to reach a point, regardless of who's healthy and pitching well, they're going to reach a point where you need your best 13 pitchers on the roster. And I think Ricky Tiedemann is going to be one of them if he's healthy. And Tiedemann is a guy who could step in very early in the season, whether that be for Manoa or another pitcher, you know, being injured or running into some problems. Uh, Bowden Francis, I think, is maybe the guy in, in camp. The guy, I would say, does not get talked about enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know he is getting a little more attention now. I heard Blair and Barker talking about him the other day. These other pitchers love him. And when other pitchers go out of their way to praise another young guy, that always gets my attention. Chris Bassett was heaping praise on him and Tiedemann early in camp. Bassett's got really, sorry, uh, Bowden Francis has really good stuff. He's finally getting built up more as a starter instead of being stuck in that middle zone. And I think it really suits him well. Uh, I think there are a lot of teams in Major League Baseball where Bowden Francis is in the rotation. And it's uh, a luxury for the Jays to have. I have not liked their depth in the rotation the last couple of years, and they've been fortunate they haven't had to use it, but it looks better now. Uh, chatting with Keegan Matheson of MLB.com. So the first uh, move in Florida was, you know, go to Target, make things feel like home. I, I feel like the first <laughs> journalistic move was to check in with most of the starters. You mentioned Bassett, and you recently caught up with uh, Barrios. Uh, not dwelling on what happened last fall. What does that say about how Jose Barrios, sort of the athlete, the competitor, and the person? Yeah, I have so much respect uh, for Jose Barrios. Did before all of that happened, uh, before uh, you know, the incident, and I guess if you can call something the incident and people know what you're talking about, that uh, describes it pretty well. Had a lot of respect for Jose before that, and that's only grown. Um, he is someone who is a very thoughtful pitcher and someone who's very introspective And I think we learned a lot about this in the year where he was bad, frankly. A lot of coaches said that Jose went out of his way to own that and to tell his teammates, you know, this is on me. I'm trying to do more. I'm letting you down more than he even needed to do. And you're seeing why he's so respected uh, around baseball right now. So it's something that he had to deal with, and it's something that had to be uncomfortable, guys, because he's in the middle of this discussion. But all he did was pitch – three of the best innings I've seen him throw in a Blue Jays uniform. And he still landed in the middle of this narrative and this discussion that dominated weeks of the off season. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy who I think is more eager than anyone to get back to that point because he was on the mound in the playoffs against his old team. Not only did he look good, he had some edge to him in that game. Like that was a different version of Jose Barrios. He looked fantastic. So for him to be able to get back to that, I think would be huge. He is in camp. He's a guy, and I feel like it doesn't show on TV enough. That dude is built like a linebacker. Mm -hmm. Like he's in amazing shape. He's got a bit of a new hairstyle this year. New look, Jose. I'm liking it, but uh, I think he's a guy that will continue to improve and uh, is as motivated as a dude can be because that had to leave a terrible taste in his mouth, uh, regardless of how well he's handled it, which he really has.
Yeah, he's my, fav- he's my favorite pitcher on the team to watch. I don't think it's really close. Just the movement is unbelievable. The competitiveness, it's it's so much fun to watch. Another quick hook in his uh, first start in spring training. <laughs> talking about that. Only two innings. Um, I wanted to talk about the, the sense of urgency surrounding this team. We heard comments from Bo Bichette earlier in spring that maybe for the first time there's doubters instead of everybody believing that the Blue Jays are sort of the team to beat or a team that's expected to make the postseason. But I was surprised by the lack of urgency from a front office perspective, especially considering the competitive window that the Blue Jays are firmly in right now and the question marks above Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette after 2025 and whether they're going to they're gonna be here long term. It's one thing for the front office to sort of not have that urgency, but are you sensing the urgency there from the players on the ground? Because that can change with the approach that they have. Maybe it's different from years past. Maybe there, there's a different, a different approach to the game. Are you getting that sense from the players that this is the year where something has to be done? Yeah, I think reality has set in for, for all of these players. and Not that it hadn't before, but it, it's at a new level where, like Bichette said, people are actually doubting this team. And guys, 99% of the time I hear an athlete say we're being doubted, I roll my eyes because they're usually on a 16-0 and team and just grasping for nothing. Bo's right. And Bo Bichette is a guy, you know, speaking of players I respect on this roster, when Bo talks, I listen, everyone in that clubhouse listens. And the Blue Jays have earned an identity that they don't want. They are the team that shows up in the playoffs with a great roster and doesn't do anything. That's what it's been the last four seasons, those last three trips, six losses. And they are a better team than that, yes, but you are what your record is, especially in the postseason. So the Blue Jays have that identity now of even if they win 96 games this year, we're going to be sitting here early October saying, okay, prove it. Shake this identity off. You know, Rewrite who this team is. And I think players understand that, so especially veteran guys and even Bo and Vladdy, they're not new to this anymore. They know how this feels. So having them going back into that situation, there is a sense of urgency. I do feel it differently, and there has to be. You know, this can go back to late 90s, early 2000s baseball real quick, and that can stick around for a long time. We've seen it happen. No, before. thank you. I know the, uh, the new wild cards help that out. You can stay a little more competitive, but these windows do not last forever. These contracts, this rotation, how well that's been built, that doesn't last forever. There has to be a real sense of urgency in this. And I do genuinely feel these players uh, sensing that more this year. Uh, Last one for you, Keegan. Blue Jays and Yankees on Sportsnet in about 15 minutes. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. told ESPN yesterday, team has not made me an offer, among other things, in an interview. Uh, Where do do we stand uh, now on the idea of a prolonged partnership between the Blue Jays and Vladdy? I've always believed the closer you get to free agency, the tougher that is. And especially if you are someone like Vladdy. Let's compare Vladdy and Bo. Bo Bichette, you feel like you can look at him and know exactly who he is and who he's going to be. Vladdy, if there are two sides in a negotiation, there's going to be one side saying, look at 2021. There's going to be another side saying, look at everything else. And those are not the two same values. So the closer you get to free agency the more tempting it is to hit that open market. And guys, I always say, whether it's a baseball player or our jobs, I have no idea how it must feel to have 20 or 30 companies, you know, bidding on your services. That's got to be attractive. And if you're going to give away that opportunity, it's got to be a real attractive number. 
And for Vladdy, even more than Bo, that can be a tough number for both sides to agree on. The closer we get to this, the the more uh, difficult it can be to get to that uh, middle ground. Uh, certainly we'll be tracking that and a plethora of Blue Jays stories across uh, the balance of the season. Hopefully we can do this many times over the course of it. Keegan, we appreciate you coming on so close to uh, the first pitch. And uh, yeah, let's do this again soon. You got it, guys. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Keegan. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com. Yeah, that's an interesting one, right? Because it's not as though Vladdy's like, no, I, w- I want to talk to uh, the 29 other teams, right? I want to do that. It's no, they haven't made me an offer yet. So that's that's definitely a wrinkle, but, you know, maybe they want, and I guess they do, the Blue Jays want all the information before uh, they're willing to dive in head first. It does seem like a, a kind of strange and bizarre time to sign Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to a contract because you really have no idea who he is. Like, you've seen what he can be. Mm-hmm. But there is a chance that he never gets back to what he was in 2021. And are you going to pay what those numbers should value him at? Probably not if you're the Blue Jays. And if you're Vladdy, I love how Keegan talked about it there. Vladdy is going to get paid by somebody. So is it not in his best interest to play the market in that sense and try and get as much money as possible? Like loyalty is a cute idea in theory. Fans of teams would love if every player all of the time was loyal, but it's just not reality. And Vladdy, unless he has another year like he had in 2021, probably will not get the number that he wanted originally. And therefore, he's going to have to go to the open market and get money from the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. It just makes more sense for him to do that. There's a lot riding on this season for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And next one. The financials in baseball seem to be changing like before we can even catch up to it. You know, mm-hmm. like Wayne Gretzky, like go to where the pass is going yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Like who knows where the finances in baseball are going. We talked about Scott Boris yesterday for such a long time. Bellinger, what was he expecting? What was a Blake Snell, a Cy Young winner expecting going into this offseason? I-, I just don't know what the expectation should be, but maybe, uh, and not that the the opportunity was there, but maybe this is so far gone, yeah. the opportunity to do the long-term thing with Vladdy for, on a multitude of levels, both with the players' intentions and the team's intentions in mind. Okay, let's get to the Ilya Labushkin trade. Do it. Leafs trade third and six-round picks to Anaheim for Labushkin. The Russian bear returns, 75% retention. Uh, an interesting move because it's the second tour for Labushkin. He was originally acquired with Ryan Zingle in exchange for Nick Ritchie and a third-round pick in 2022, or at least the 2021-22 season. Uh, so partly used to erase a mistake, right? Nick Ritchie yeah. was not working. Yeah. They move on with Nick Ritchie. They bring in a guy who can soak up some minutes on the back end. Played in 31 games. The Leafs acquired Mark Giordano that season. They started the postseason with these six defensemen, Morgan Riley and Labushkin on the top pair. Muzzin, Brody, Giordano, Liljegren, Justin Hall was scratched uh, that season or th- to start that postseason in 2022. Interestingly, Labushkin helped form the fourth most common pair on the team that season, playing almost exclusively with Morgan stat. Riley. So we can yeah. almost pencil Labushkin in with Riley to start. And I guess they were doing that with Max Lejoie as a fill-in at practice today. But I'll just kind of lob it into your court. Was this the right move? Was this a good move? Was this wise on the part of Brad Living to bring in Labushkin? It's not going to potentially win them a Stanley Cup, but if you look at the moves that players or teams have eventually won the Stanley Cup, if you look at what they've done at the deadline, it's never really been something that has moved the needle significantly. This is not going to, quote-unquote, put them over the top, but what it does is it gives you a little bit of depth for something that is not 
that expensive of a cost. Yes, the, the Leafs are already strapped for draft picks. There's no question about it. But when Giordano left last night, like you, you simply had to make a move. You have to start getting depth and accumulating depth when you have all lefties in the back end. It, it's like, and not only that, when you have Morgan Riley and TJ Brody playing the way that they were playing together, you needed to find somebody else who could play with Morgan Riley and actually has done it in the past and proven that it can work. And Ilya Labushkin is a guy who could step in and do it. For the cost that that was, I think it's a, a move that you had to make if you're Bradshaw Living. Everybody was getting antsy. Sheldon Keith certainly seemed like he was getting antsy. He had spoken in the media a number of times about being hamstrung from a coach's perspective of what he could do at the back end. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not the most important move in the world, but it is something that can help solidify a back end that will always have questions about it. And especially when you had all lefties on the back end, a move needed to be made. Yeah. Uh, I think if it wasn't 75% retained and to get it to 75% retained, they had to throw Very in the important. six round yes. pick yes. Uh, as well to make sure there was the third party broker uh, to drop the price down, but paying more to drop the price down, I think to me basically ensures there's another move, right? This isn't uh, the half measure approach that they're going to take mm-hmm. uh, going into the playoffs. They're going to try to bolster this lineup, whether it's another defenseman or a forward what have you. I do feel a little bit for Morgan Riley because, you know, he's played really, really well this year. He maybe is responsible for like the the touch point moment of the entire season, going after Ridley Gregg and the Leafs respond with Definitely. seven straight victories. But do you put a little bit of a ceiling on Morgan Riley if you saddle him with Labushkin? And it, it feels like he ha- kind of has to play for the most part. With Labushkin, yeah, you can flex him out. Labushkin maybe plays 12 minutes and Riley finds a way in, uh, to play a little bit more partnering in some like you know, offensively focused situations, but it feels like, Hey, let's just stabilize or try to stabilize with one elite ish defenseman and a guy who can just kind of be replacement level on the right side in Labushkin, but he will, as mentioned, play on the right side. He will kill penalties and he will stabilize things in the short term. And maybe he's not needed in the long term as much because maybe there's another move here, but just for that reason alone, the 75% retained, I think it tells you a little bit, about what Brad Living yeah. wants to do. And for that reason, I feel like this is incomplete and we can judge it all more accurately once we get to the deadline, once that following move is completed. Because, yeah, you're not paying that extra just to have cap space after the deadline. That's just not a thing a team with like the Maple Leafs would do. Any team that's trying to win a Stanley Cup. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. And I think in Labushkin's case, like, what are people always clamoring for come playoff time? It's physical defensemen that get in your face. I mean, the guy's nickname is the Russian bear. Like, what are mm-hmm. we talking about? It's exactly what you want in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. You want someone who could be intimidating. This is what Leaf fans have been clamoring for forever. You could never have enough of those guys. And the cost is just not that much. A third round pick. What are the chances that a third round pick ends up as some star player down the road, or even someone that you could use as draft collateral. I mean, the chances are not great when you get down to the third round of an NHL draft. Clearly the cupboard was left a little bit bare by Kyle Dubas, but unfortunately for Brad Living, or fortunately, he walked into a situation where the expectation is to win now. So he sort of has a dual mandate to preserve as much as you can from a draft capital perspective, but also make sure you're giving this team and Sheldon Keefe the best tools he has at his disposal going into the postseason to try and actually win a Stanley Cup. Because ultimately, that's what everybody should be here for. Mm-hmm. The goal should for the Toronto Maple Leafs have the best team going into the playoffs to try and win a cup finally. And this town, the city, is starved for it. 
give yourself the best opportunity to do it. The process started before Kyle Dubas uh, left town, kind of transitioning from a mobile defense that was, you know, underscored by the likes of Rasmus Sandy, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, that process to become bigger, tougher, maybe a little less talented overall, but maybe more equipped for big moments that happened before Bradshaw Living arrived. But you can see what we're trying to do or what he's trying to do here. It's to be like more like Vegas, more like the teams that have success in the playoffs that have big hulking defense cores that make it really difficult. And I think Lubushkin will help make awesome. things difficult in addition to Simone Benoit, who is going to play a big role on this team. I mean, two of the three pairings are going to have those two guys uh, clogging up the lanes. I do worry a little bit, though, about what there is left to trade because a third-round pick goes, a second-round pick another one. is already <laughs> yeah. gone. Yeah. So where does that leave the Leafs now? A first-round pick on the table. We will discuss that on the other side, what the Leafs might have to deal in order to be better after the deadline. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back in the fan pregame, Sportsnet 360, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Uh, Steph Curry returns to Scotiabank Arena for the first time in five years, at least on court. Finals rematch from five years ago. Uh, it's going to be a good one on Sportsnet 1 tonight. We're going to have Sirit Sohi in about five minutes. And then S. Haney did a great job on the Raptors show uh, this week in about a half hour. But we we're talking about the Maple Leafs cupboard and what they might do post-Labushkin acquisition. Yes. Uh, before the break there... And it's, you have to ask that question because, hey, Labushkin is the like bare minimum type trade, right? Like if you, you, you keep the financial flexibility with the trade because it's 75% retention, but it costs you a third round pick. So it's going to be sure. more to get more, right? At least you would think. For 2024 in the draft, they got their first round pick, no second rounder. They got a third round pick from the New York Islanders, still five, uh, three picks in the fifth round, as well as some late round draft picks. Next year, nothing in the first four drafts, although there's a condition on the first round pick. And their round, uh, their second round pick in 2026 has also been removed from the docket. So there's only That's so crazy. much that they have to give, right? And if they're going to give more than a third round pick or get more than Labushkin, well, it's got to be a first rounder mm-hmm. or it's got to be a prospect in the system already. So Brad Living was asked about his willingness to deal a first rounder. Let's hear from Brad. To me, and I know there's all, all sorts of talk, in the right deal, to me where our team's at, you'd, you'd want to help the team. Um, I think you've got to be careful with first-round picks for short-term, you know, short-term help. As the manager, you also have to look at not just the next six weeks lens, but you balance it. And uh, so we've, we've tried to look at opportunities um, that could help our team using any and all capital we have available. So I think that's fair, right? I mean, we're going to judge any deal and what it cost in any deal based on what's coming back yeah. for the Toronto Maple yeah. Leafs. Uh, and having, you know, the rental is maybe something you would be, even despite the level of talent, you'd be a little gun shy maybe on the rental to give away the first round pick given what's in the system for the Maple Leafs. But really the only thing for me that would be off the board, and again, we're talking about what's reasonable here, would be trading Easton Cowan. I, I feel like... It kind of starts. There's a line there, a line in the sand. Dubas to Treliving. Well, Cowan was Treliving's pick. 
Cowan is having this unbelievable year. 27 Cowan straight fits point, yeah. where this team might be going in terms of identity, given that he's not just a talented forward, but he's a gritty guy and something that the Maple Leafs need and are moving towards. So really, it depends on the deal. But if there's a great player out there who's going to have some term or what have, what have you, I mean, it would make sense still to trade that first round pick if you're the Leafs. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that's a great perspective. I think what Brad Treliving had to say there was completely logical. Like, it, it really does matter on what's coming back. Like, if the Edmonton Oilers are like, hey, take Leon Dreisaitl from us, we we're just going to need Easton Cowan. Like, it, it, there's, there's yes. times where the value that is coming back far exceeds having a prospect. Like, there's always a time that you can trade a prospect. To say that you are unwilling to trade a prospect is a very dangerous game because you don't know what you can get. You have to use the prospects that you have as leverage in order to make your team better. Like Easton Cowan seems like he has an extremely bright future and seems like he's going to be a big part of the Toronto Maple Leafs moving forward. He's also 18 years old. He's 18 years old. A lot can happen from the time he's an 18-year-old playing with the London Knights to being in the National Hockey League. If you can get something that helps you right now that you truly believe can push you from a team that loses in the first round or the second round and get you into a Stanley Cup final or get you into even an Easter Conference final, which they haven't been doing in a long time either. Like these are calculated moves that you have to address. And you cannot just sit there and say, we're unwilling to move someone because he's having a great year in junior. Like these things are not... They're nonsensical when you're building a team. I understand. It's like what they said with Matthew Nyes. The fan base never wanted anyone to touch Matthew Nyes. Matthew Nyes is a good hockey player. Mm -hmm. Should he have ever been untouchable? I mean, it remains to be seen. Maybe he's going to develop into a phenomenal hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But was was there ever a world where Matthew Nyes should have been, quote-unquote, untouchable? Probably not. If he would have made the Leafs a lot better last year or the year before by trading Mm -hmm. him, that it was something they probably should have done. So I'd just be cautious of, of fans who are saying, you know, Easton Cowan, he's got a point in 27 straight games for the London Knights. He's completely untouchable. There's always, yeah. there always could be something coming back. This you, is good. You, you got to be careful holding prospects in too high of a regard, totally. certainly in this city. But what you have to be mindful of is just bankrupting yourself. You have running out of yeah. currency. Because <laughs> yeah. if you have nothing, yeah. you can't get anything when you need it. It's a bit and of a and that's just the reality, right? Like, whether it's Cowan or nameless draft pick, you got to have something mm-hmm. to get to the poker table yeah. uh, at all. Okay, let's switch gears. Go to the Raptors and the Warriors tonight, Scotiabank Arena again. It's the first time we're going to see Steph Curry at Scotiabank Arena on court since Game 5 of the NBA Finals. And to discuss that and more, let's bring in Sirit Sohi of The Ringer. What's going on, Sirit? Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, we're doing pretty well. Uh, let's start with the Warriors because... This is a fascinating group. It's always a fascinating group. I think we were talking about two weeks ago. I think you were kind of down on where the Warriors are. And it's not like they went out there uh, ahead of the deadline and really moved heaven and earth to be better. Uh, There was a heaven and earth possibility with LeBron James, I suppose, or reportedly. uh, But that didn't happen. And now this team is just adjusting with what it has. And that includes moving Clay Thompson to the second unit. But what is this version of the Warriors? Are they on some sort of upswing with these changes? Or is it just an average team that's kind of reached its own level of optimization? No, I think that I I think that they've really found something since the trade deadline. I imagine that there was a level of calm that probably emanated through the organization. But I think beyond anything else, there's two factors. Uh, Before the lineup change even happened, the current starting lineup 
of Curry, Brandon Pajemski, Wiggins, Kaminga, and Green was just blowing the tops off building. So starting them was basically the best move that you could possibly make. And then since Clay Thompson has come off the bench, granted small sample size, it's only been six games, but he's almost averaging 20 points off the bench. You got Chris Paul back. That's going to be an interesting piece to integrate, just given like we know how he plays. He likes to slow the game down. And a big piece of the Warriors picking it up again has been picking up the pace. Uh, I liked what we saw from him the other night uh, against uh, against the Knicks, where in his earlier shifts, he was really just trying to push the ball up the floor. Then they got him down in the game late in the fourth quarter just to slow things down, to stop the Warriors from doing that Warriors thing that they just seem to never be able to get away from doing when they, they have a big lead and they manage to blow it. Uh, so it feels like they're really finding a way to use him correctly as well. And then just the young guys, Kaminga, Moody, Pajemski, they've just been playing incredibly well. I love when they when they have those guys out there with uh, with Draymond Green and Steph Curry and and Green being back. You know, I think that's that's like that that's probably the biggest factor with this team is just how much you have to live with the fact that Draymond Green is your mm-hmm. engine, he's your fuel, he's your heart, he's your entire defense, and boy, has he just been incredibly defiant. Since coming back from his suspension, uh, it seems like after the early apologies, he's just kind of back on back on his Draymond stuff. You know, I don't think we can we can we can swear on air here, but I think you know what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, it. Maybe one yeah, day. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's been it's been interesting to watch. Uh, I don't think that you know the Western Conference is just so strong that you give the Warriors a shot just because of their history. I don't think that this really changes the picture in terms of who they can be in, you know, let's say like, are they making the finals? I don't think so. But at the same time, they're at least, you know, they're back in play. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Like I, when I think of the warriors, I feel like I can trust them going into the playoffs that you're probably going to get the best version of them. But I got to be honest, I look at the rest of the NBA and I'm having trust issues. I have no idea who's actually good. There's teams that we haven't seen near the top of the standings up there, like the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Oklahoma City Thunder. You look in the East, I mean, Boston seems like really the only sort of sure thing in the NBA. And are they even really a sure thing or are they more of a regular season team? I just don't know with any of these teams, when you try and evaluate who's for real and who you trust, who are some of those teams? Because I can't figure out who it is for me. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of teams will make you wobble. You know, um, I think the Celtics you mentioned are a great example of that. You look at every single stat um, on paper. You look at their experience. You look at the fact that they are easily the best team in the East. I personally think that they should win the East just because you look at the things that all these other teams are going through. I really, I think Cleveland is, I mean, they're not really a dark horse. They're now the second seed in the NBA, but since they've reintegrated some of their healthy guys, I think they need to figure out some lineup issues. I think they can be really strong if they do. And you look at some of the lineups that they're closing with, they're better than that starting lineup that they have with Mobley and Garland back that just feels jammed up both on the backcourt and the frontcourt. But the fact that they're not finishing with that lineup is encouraging to me, but it's also, you know, it's March. These are not, it's not really the time that you should be thinking about who your finishing guys are. So that's a point of concern with them. With Milwaukee, I'm just like, God, I mean, look, the, the Doc thing, the Griffin thing, we can all talk about it. I think they've been better defensively for reasons like like bear themselves out in the X's and O's. They definitely just played a more sort of 
balanced style between being conservative and aggressive. They they put out more coverages. They're trying harder. But if Chris Middleton isn't healthy, these guys aren't going anywhere, you know. And and I worry a lot about them having just such a thin front court overall. They have a lot of structural issues. The Knicks just can't seem to get healthy. Yeah. The Sixers and Bede's coming back. We don't know what that's going to look like. It seems like they traded defense for offense. I'm really dubious about how that works out in a playoff setting. So, you know, to take this all back, you, you want to bring it all back to the Celtics. But, God, is it hard to have faith in them. We just have this collective memory of watching them make mistake after mistake after mistake, finding a way to basically just be worse than the team that they that they actually are, which is incredibly talented, well-rounded, experienced, versatile you know they they have an incredible defense, an incredible offense, and they should they should be in the finals. You know they should be in the finals. They are my finals pick, but I'm also just like I need to see the ball roll out. You know I don't I, I don't know what it's actually going to look like. So basically, it's like if the Raptors find a way to get in the play and anything can happen. <laughs> Nobody has right, that, right? right yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just like that. Yeah, I mean the Boston point's fascinating. There's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> there's a chance. Uh, like they they have an outside chance of a, a historical season, Boston Celtics. And yet, like, yeah, people are acknowledging them, but no one's, like, getting real excited, right? Like, there's that caveat. That is just is going to linger until, what, the, the Eastern Conference Final? Yeah, until they, they win. win the fourth game in the Eastern Conference Final? I feel like that's just going to hang over them, despite how unbelievably they've been. I mean, great teams in the West. I think they're five games up on every single team uh, gunning for the number one seed out in the Western Conference. You didn't mention Denver. You didn't mention Denver either in terms of trust or trust issues. Uh, Denver seems like it's kind of stated its intentions a little bit since coming back from the all-star break. Uh, KCP, Contavious Caldwell-Pope actually said it. There's like, hey, we're going for the number one seed. We're going to win again uh, a couple days ago. Is Denver, not that they were sleepwalking for 50 games or whatever it's been, but is Denver, if they just turn the switch a little bit, is everyone just chasing them again? I think so. I think they're the best team in the Western Conference. I think the thing I watch out for with them is injury. Uh, we saw just Murray. last night Jamal yeah. Murray out with a, with it looks like an ankle sprain. Mm-hmm. He's been dealing with shin splints for it's it feels like almost the entire season, certainly about half the season. Uh, so that health is a big issue for them, and I think that they need they might not need it because Nikola Jokic is Nikola Jokic. So I can't say they need it, but I think. I would feel a lot more confident in them if they got a little bit more consistent bench production. They can get it. I really like Peyton Watson. I really like Christian Brown. But there is a little bit of risk that comes with relying on young guys so much. I think we saw that a little bit last night. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I'm just I'm curious about certain things with them. Like, why why is Michael Porter Jr. sort of having this down year shooting Um Opponents are always going to respect him, but I, that's that's another place where you, you would have thought that naturally he would have just filled that you know staggered lineups and filled that uh, that bench scoring deficit, and that hasn't necessarily happened either. Uh, at the same time, though, as long as they're healthy, they're the best starting lineup in the NBA again. Uh, they outscore opponents by about 15 points per possession, and they've played more minutes together this season than any other team, you know, like they're just like, they have their 10,000 hours and then some, and they're getting better and, and better at playing together as well. And, you know, you just, they're a matchup nightmare. I, I got flashbacks to game one of the NBA finals, just watching Aaron Gordon first quarter, just put the hurt on Miami and them not having any idea what to do. I think they're still 
the team that I'm looking at and saying, like, okay, I, tr- I trust them the most in the West, but the West is going to be a gauntlet. And I think you look at some team, like the, a team like the Timberwolves, for example, is I think constructed in a way to to give the Nuggets uh, a lot of sh- a lot of challenges, but you don't really know how it's going to shape up with their offense, with their maturity, what version of Carl Anthony Towns are you going to get? You know, is McDaniels going to go a little bit off the deep end, things like that. Um, otherwise I do, I do love the Timberwolves too. And, you know, there's another, there, there are a number of teams in the West that I think give me a, mo- a lot more confidence long-term and that I'm just kind of waiting for them to figure out a few things. Yeah. It, it's, it's always fun watching Nikola Jokic do his thing. Like last night he was going for a fifth straight triple double, didn't get it, but he had some ridiculous plays and it's like you truly, you can't take watching him for granted. Another guy who falls into that category clearly is Victor Wembanyama. And I, I, when I think back to some of the greatest players that we've had the privilege of watching in sort of our era, I think of LeBron, I think of Steph Curry, and I think Victor Wembanyama, even as a rookie, is falling into that category where it's like almost must-see TV every single night. And then what he did last night at the end of the game against the Thunder, blocking Chet Holmgren, who's unbelievable in his own right, like mm-hmm. we, we cannot take watching Wemby for granted, but what is his ceiling? Because it feels like he's getting better literally every <laughs> single game, and there's commentary out there already that says he's on a trajectory to be the greatest defensive player in the history mm-hmm. of the NBA. And it's like, yeah, he's 7'4". You know, you would expect him to be a good defensive player, but the greatest defensive player in the history of the league halfway through his first season? Like, it's unbelievable what we're witnessing. There's no ceiling. There is absolutely no ceiling to this guy at all. I mean, and there's probably a metaphor here about his height and his wingspan yeah. that I'm, I'm not going to go for, or maybe just like the how high up of a lob you can throw him um, and he'll still catch it. Uh, but he can, he can be whatever he wants to be. And I think the most exciting thing about him is that he wants to tap into every inch of his potential um, and he wants to just be as good as he can be. Like you, we hear it from him over and over again like he wants to be rookie of the year he was mad at during the skills competition at all-star break because at the all-star game because anthony david or anthony edwards was kind of messing around and he wanted to win (laughs) you know i think there's just there he's so he's so talented but he's also so motivated and i think he's in the perfect position the franchise that he's with and as far as defense you know I, i think just Let's let's talk about that last play, right? Like we're talking about Chet Holmgren, who, with his length, his ball handling ability, and his height, is in, is able to create distance from basically anybody. You shouldn't be able to block Chet Holmgren, but but Wembenyama does it like without even leaving his feet. Yeah, and you, you think about how many guys that can guard Shea Gilgis Alexander, and it's. Pretty close to zero, in my opinion. But then you have Wembenyama once again actually being able to predict what the one, like the one guy that you can't really predict what Mufi's going to make next is, is SGA, in my opinion, as far as scoring goes. And again, he just like blocks him. You can he can block you on both sides of the rim without being on the other side of the rim. He breaks all these rules about basketball, but like, hey, use use the rim as your shot blocker. Um, just, I don't know, man, like, and he can really actually be in two places at once, which I think is the key to defending in the modern NBA. And there are certain guys who get there every once in a while, but he can be there pretty much all the time. Like he's on the nail and he's also helping out in the corner. It's just, it's, it's incredible to watch. And he's also just really putting it together on a Spurs team that I think is finding 
more optimized lineups within what they have. I think that having a guy like Julian Champagne long-term, not exactly him, but a guy like him makes a lot of sense for Wemby just because Julian is a little bit, he's a little stockier. He can guard some of the the heavier players that I think uh, could give Wembenyama trouble. He can cut, he can hypothetically shoot. He's not really moving the needle on that end though, in my opinion. So they're starting to, I think, see what works best around him. The other thing, you take Champagne out of that lineup that they have now starting and you put Keldon Johnson in there and they have like, they're outscoring opponents by like 25 points. It, it, so Different I mean, team. they're they're kind of figuring things out. Yeah, they're figuring things out as a team. Um, it's not leading to wins yet. You don't want it to either. You don't really want like a Luca situation where they get so good so fast that now you're kind of wondering if they will ever have enough talent around him. Uh, but I mean, man, I don't know. I like what 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 do you say about the guy? He can he could be the great. He could end up being the greatest player of all time. I mean, you don't want to put those things on him mm-hmm. because. He's still so young, but there's just no limit. He can like he's breaking the game. I was watching oh, at halftime of the Denver game last night. I was just well, I was watching the game with my mom. I'm back home, and she was asking like, "Who's the tallest player in the NBA?" And he's not actually the tallest player in the NBA, but the spirit because of the spirit of the question, I was like, "I'm gonna put on some Victor Wembanyama highlights for you." She just starts laughing, mm-hmm. like you know, like you can't do anything. He's he's just unfair. He can he can do anything he wants to you and. I think it's just, I don't know, it, it's clear. He's breaking basketball. He's taking it to, he's just taking it to a new place. Yeah, it might not be the greatest rookie season ever, but I feel like it might be the greatest jump from game one to game 82 across a rookie season. Like, mm. it, Chet Holmgren was the favorite to win rookie of the year for the first, like, three months of the season. I guess not preseason favorite, but Chet was better for a good chunk. And now Wemby is doing something better every single night he's out there. And it feels like the way he's going, the trajectory he's on, uh, it's going to be scary what he is at game 82, let alone you know, season eight uh, when we get there. Uh, last one for you, you got to ask you about the Raptors. Three and one since the All-Star break. Uh, comp- uh, three, uh, three wins in a row to get that pizza party and a competitive loss to the Dallas <laughs> Mavericks. Anything instructive here with the Raptors since coming back from the All-Star? And it's okay if there's nothing really. No, I think, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of good stuff from them. I think like there's just been a number of growth points for them. I think uh, the first thing I'll say on Scotty Barnes is that since the incident in the San Antonio bench uh, where, where he left and there are some questions about his leadership and it kind of was at a boiling point in terms of just his body language and things like that. Like multiple times I've seen now where you see him wanting to erupt at the end of a play, he'll like smack the ball and then he'll just keep it moving. And I think that is just as important as some of the stuff that we're seeing on the court as well. So that's, that's a great growth point. We talked about Emmanuel quickly last time I was on, I think, mm-hmm. about how he just mm-hmm. hadn't figured things out. And I think that's been huge as well. It seems like he's just been a lot more aggressive. Um, he's had the ball in his hands a lot more, it seems like. And it's like the coaching staff really, really wants him to be more aggressive. And it seems like he's just finding his sea legs as like the the number two creator, as the lead ball handler. And, and to be able to do that after the All-Star break, I think it just really bodes well for the summer for him. RJ's been incredible. We know Grady Dick is even figuring it out. I don't know, there's just a lot of things that are that are coming up right for the Raptors. So I think it really helps them, in my opinion, to have this stretch going into the offseason now to actually see what a competent version of this team looks like. Um, I still would love to, and, and, and also you got to give it to Yaka Pertle for his defense and just like how how much better he's been since recovering from his ankle injury as well. So. 
there's just there, there's a lot of good stuff happening. I still think that you know when they get into like their second and third actions and stuff like they did against uh, the Mavericks that that's when you sort of start to see the things that teams will live with. Like you start going from a yak layup to a yak floater too many times and the offense can kind of create more Gary Trent mid-rangers as opposed to like RJ Barrett at the rim. I think that that type of stuff uh, kind of shows you what their points of weakness still are. But I mean, I don't know, ride it out and see how much, see what you need, see what you need. Right. Um, I still think more shooting obviously, but beyond that, I mean, that's kind of an obvious answer, right? So yeah. it, it's it's a good opportunity for for uh, the, the front office, I think, to dig in and, and see what they want to do in the offseason. Yeah, we could be pacing toward a, a hopeful end to what was a frustrating season, and I think that would be a good yeah, story to write to uh, for this Raptors year. Uh, Sirit, always appreciate you coming on. It's always great uh, catching up Thanks with you, and me. we'll do it again real soon. That's Sirit Zoe of The Ringer. Uh, quickly, we got to get to best bets, but a mm-hmm. note on tonight's game. Michael Grange reports earlier, Warriors plane was delayed getting out of New York last night. Mechanical issue. Didn't take off till 5 a.m. Didn't land till 6. Didn't get to the hotel till 7. So the Raptors maybe have some sort of advantage built in. But I don't necessarily want to go Raptors or Warriors tonight. I just think that might land on Curry. Curry's first game in Toronto. Of course, he was putting up shots in Toronto as a little kid. I think he rises to the occasion tonight. If his team's not really feeling all that good, maybe it's on him to put a couple threes uh, in the bottom of the well, as Paul Jones would say. So over 30 points, plus 105. Also like the Kings to win the Pacific Division, 20 to 1. I think you're bang on with that. Uh, The Coyotes taking on the Senators tonight. Arizona, obviously, losers of 14 in a row playing in a back-to-back. I like the Sens on the puck line, playing better hockey as of late. So uh, I'll be rooting for the Ottawa Senators tonight. There you go. Rooting for the Ottawa Senators. Uh, We will be back on the other side on Sportsnet 590. The fan will have S. Bear Henny on to talk about uh, the Raptors and Warriors a Love little it. bit more before we throw it to Jonesy and Eric Smith for the Raptors and Warriors. We'll be back in a second.